The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. On this edition of Century, it's part three of our look at what the research really shows about Oregon's Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. RTI International hosted a research symposium on Measure 110 on January 22nd. A number of excellent speakers, some tremendous presentations. We're going to hear today first from Danielle Good, Ph.D., Senior Research Associate with Comagine Health. Her talk is entitled Law Enforcement Encounters After Measure 110, Gaps in Decriminalization and Experiences of People Who Use Drugs. So I'm here today to talk about some gaps in decriminalization and the experiences of people who use drugs. And I really want to start by talking about the importance of sharing the perspectives that are shared here in this work and that have been shared throughout today. We've already heard from people who use drugs about their experiences of overdose, of overdoses witnessed and reversed, of being unhoused, of being pregnant, of parenting. And now I'm going to share more details of their experience of being policed. Sharing perspectives from people who use drugs on Measure 110 is important because they provide firsthand insight into policy impacts in the community. And at the end of our interviews, we always ask a big open-ended question, which is, what do you want researchers to know? And here, we have a participant who answered, they were thinking about Measure 110 as a smart idea and something that they saw as successful. And they said, even if researchers do not have the evidence yet, we see the evidence before they do. And they're spot on. Most, if not all, research is based on things that people are seeing in the world before researchers think to ask. We do research to confirm, extend, and learn more about the things that people who use drugs already know. And we do research to provide an official account, platform, and record to share. So you've already heard some things about this work, which builds on a survey of 468 people who use drugs in Oregon. All 468 people consented to having their experiences shared in settings like these. And they can't all be here today, so we're happy to be here to provide that official account platform and record. We did 32 follow-up interviews to the survey, and that's the foundation of the talk that I'm doing today. We already heard from Morgan, um, Dr. Esther Chung, Dr. Hope Smiley-McDonald about some of the findings here. The goal of the follow-up interviews that I'm going to talk about was to gain in-depth insights into topics covered in the survey. We wanted to give people the ability to answer in their own words with all the detail, complexity, and contradictions they needed space for. Interviews were 60 minutes long. We offered $50 cash incentive. They were audio recorded, transcribed, and analyzed. So thank you to everyone who helped with all of that. So how we picked the people to follow up with. We selected people who were knowledgeable about Measure 110 or knowledgeable about Oregon's drug laws more broadly. So the people here quoted in this presentation are a bit more knowledgeable than what Hope just mentioned, which is that not everyone had a ton of knowledge about Measure 110 who we surveyed. Oops. We also looked for people who had had criminal legal encounters, um, like receiving a Class E ticket or that they were on community supervision, because we knew that that would impact their uh, their experience of criminalization, decriminalization. 
We looked for people who were connected to other people who use drugs in the community. We could only follow up with 32 folks. So we wanted people who could speak to their neighbors, their friends, to some of the other things that were happening. Folks who were willing to expand on answers. This was a 20 to 40 minute survey and an hour long interview. So thank you for spending a good portion of your day with us if you participated in this. <laughs> and we looked for regional and demographic diversity, which is represented here. You can see the counties that we interviewed people in and a bit about the interview participant pool. So what did we hear about from participants? We asked people about what police do if they see people using drugs now, what their most recent law enforcement interaction was, what happened, what the outcome of that interaction was, their willingness to call police for help, and their hopes and concerns related to Measure 110. This was about half of the questions we covered in this interview, so there was actually a lot more data, but we're focused here on the law enforcement components. And as Dr. Smiley McDonald also spoke to, um, we have heard from law enforcement and other work about how they felt about the changes with Measure 110. And those efforts like the paper that she shared showed that law enforcement lamented the loss of a tool or motivating factor of a role that law enforcement saw themselves as having in a previous system of criminalization. Today, I'm focusing on how people who use drugs are experiencing this shift and I think it sounds a bit different from that perspective. Here, I talk about the ways that people still see themselves as policed and criminalized, but hopeful for an alternate future that Measure 110 gestures at, a fewer negative law enforcement interactions. And so I highlighted here that after Measure 110, people who use drugs still interact with law enforcement that I'm echoing from the panel. So what do those interactions look like? We asked about what the police do if they see people using drugs now. Participants observed that law enforcement does seem to focus less on drug possession and public substance use in the present moment. But there's a caveat, which is that these responses to drug use varied by interaction and jurisdiction. This meant that people observed, depending on the law enforcement officer or what they perceived as the law enforcement officer's mood, law enforcement may have different responses to drug use. We also heard overall very different approaches by region, city, and agency. Participants reported that law enforcement does not typically offer resources or assistance to people who use drugs. And participants were often not familiar with Class E violations, even amongst this sample of people who were more knowledgeable about Measure 110 overall. A lot of people hadn't seen um, many Class E violations given out. We spoke to one person who was connected to services through a Class E violation. I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A. So I'm gonna quote now from participants. Um, police responses are inconsistent and unpredictable. So this participant says, sometimes they see us using drugs and they just drive by and they don't even stop. Sometimes they come and they break your pipe and they take your drugs and needles. It's completely random. And then police seem not to care really. I think they just think everyone is on drugs. So they treat everyone the same. If you're homeless, that is. If they see us using drugs, then they'll stop you and they'll search you. Sometimes they actually don't care. Cops will just say, hey, stop, go take that somewhere else. So everything is uh, in orange in this slide deck is a quote. Uh, I'm gonna read them, but people use language that is not mine and they use language to describe themselves and their circumstances that I would not necessarily use, but those are the quotes. So what are participants being stopped for now if not for substance use? We asked what people's most recent law enforcement interaction was, and people talked about being stopped for being unhoused, 
for resting in public, for jaywalking, for accessing parks, public restrooms, or water fountains, sometimes at night or sometimes just in times of need, for staying in stores too long, for playing music, for visual markers that they may be unhoused, like carrying backpacks, tents, or camping supplies. Law enforcement interactions were frequent and stressful, even without arrests or formal citations. So I want to note that in the survey, we asked about being arrested, charged, booked. But here in the qualitative, we often heard from people talking about law enforcement stops that may have ended in nothing happening, but still were characterized as negative and stressful. So participants still feel targeted, penalized by law and penalized by law enforcement, especially for being unhoused. The person at the top says, it's crazy to me to think that this is the only state where drugs have been decriminalized and homelessness is criminalized. And then it's the tents that police really go after. It's people inside tents. It gives them the right, it gives them the probable cause to take people out, search them, run their names, and potentially arrest you because you have warrants. And if you're homeless, you're a drug addict and a criminal in their eyes, and that's how they treat us. Participants experiencing homelessness felt targeted regardless of drug using status. And a history with the criminal legal system also left people feeling vulnerable in law enforcement interactions. And that's outside of community supervision. That could also be if people had warrants. So like the person calls out in quote two. These feelings of being targeted carry over into, into people's willingness to call the police for help. So a history with law enforcement informs current willingness to call for help. Participants felt that law enforcement may escalate situations or not be prepared to help in situations of mental health or substance use related emergencies. Morgan included a quote in her talk referencing this in relation to Narcan. And some officers may be polite or people often characterize officers as professional, but it doesn't counter previous negative interactions with law enforcement or unpredictability. So with the uneven ways that law enforcement responds, people tend to think of the negative or the floor of interactions when weighing whether or not they call the police. So we've heard a lot today about how early it is. Um, here's a participant acknowledging that. It's gonna take a minute, I think, for Measure 110 to de-escalate from what it used to be to what it is now. And I think police make situations worse, to be honest with you. I think that a lot of times something can just be handled within with people who are doing it. Police kind of draw it out. They would rather try to take somebody to jail instead of help. And here you have someone really clearly characterizing being taken to jail as not helpful. And if you crack me over the head, you would think I would call the police, right? Why would I call the police when I was assaulted for the police to show up and assault me again? Police should be coming here to help me, not run my name when I called them to defend me. Another reference to that vulnerability when someone has warrants. Participants were also reluctant to call for help because they didn't see law enforcement as willing or able to help. So this is referencing someone who was having a mental health crisis. It wasn't like police treated them bad, but it was kind of like they had better things to do. I've never seen police take anybody to get help ever. And maybe after a while, police get burnt out. I could totally understand that. But when I got stabbed, I didn't call the cops because I didn't expect help. So we have two points here of violent encounters where people actually would have liked to have options for support, but they didn't have a good option. Measure 110 gave some people hope that they could maybe have some sort of public safety support going forward. So one thing we heard when we asked what makes you hopeful about Measure 110 is that law enforcement would be able to shift priorities to other crimes 
And this was often um, around violent crime or around people's stuff being stolen. So participants noted they often felt safe in their community. And when they felt unsafe, they didn't have options. So they hoped the police would focus on violent crimes. And they also thought that not policing personal possession would help law enforcement focus on larger scale distributors. This says Measure 110 opens up a lot more space for law enforcement to do things that are much more needed. And Measure 110 is freeing up space for real criminals. Cops aren't going after people who are smoking a little bit of dope. They're going after violent criminals, people who are robbing people. They're not hurting people who are committing victimless crimes. This was expressed as a hopeful forward-looking statement, so thinking about the future. And stopping the cycle of arrests made participants hopeful about drug decriminalization. People hoped that they would avoid frequent negative police interactions and jail time. And participants hoped that Measure 110 would ultimately reduce stigma from criminalization. I just hope that it puts everybody in the same category and just makes people not view drug addicts in such a negative way. Drug addicts aren't necessarily criminals. I think a lot of people can get addicted to drugs without ever having thought of doing a crime. I don't think that the two are the same at all. And I think it makes it harder to get your life back together when you're in and out of jail for it. Really, I think it would be better if you could just not have to go through with that and get your life back together. So to summarize, participants observed that law enforcement generally were less focused on drug possession and public substance use since Measure 110, but these experiences were incredibly variable. Participants still feel targeted and penalized by the criminal legal system, particularly those who are unhoused. And participants were hopeful that Measure 110 would bring about fewer law enforcement interactions, less time in jail, and a shift towards policing crimes like violent offenses and larger scale drug distribution. And before I read this last quote, I just want to reemphasize some of the stresses that we've heard throughout the day, some of the things that impact people who use drugs quality of living, overdoses, witnessing, responding to overdoses, being unhoused, waiting for housing, all of the things that people reflected on in these talks and read what this participant shared, which is that Measure 110 has been really helpful not stressing all the time in reference to going to jail. Because before, we'd have to stress ourselves to death. That was Danielle Good, PhD, Senior Research Associate with Comagin Health, speaking at RTI International's Oregon Measure 110 Research Symposium on January 22nd on the topic of law enforcement encounters after Measure 110, gaps in decriminalization and experiences of people who use drugs. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Esther Chung, Ph.D., is a social epidemiologist with RTI International. Her talk is entitled Homelessness and Housing Access Among People Who Use Drugs in Oregon in 2023, a survey in eight counties. So as Marissa um, so eloquently uh, described, it's really well documented that substance use and housing instability are um, bidirectional. So substance use is disproportionately high among people who are unstably housed compared to the general population that is housed. People who use drugs are at an increased risk of housing instability. Stable housing is critical for people who use drugs in order to prevent overdose and death, as well as form a foundation for treatment and recovery. However, people who use drugs have an especially difficult time accessing stable housing due to the stigma, barriers to care, and restrictive housing policies that Marissa mentioned before. This is particularly dangerous because the criminalization of both drug use and homelessness can create situations in which um, that can lead to fatal overdoses. In the summer of 2022, the majority of M110 funding was allocated and dispersed to community providers 
And a portion of that included increased access to housing services for people who use drugs. So we wanted to know um, what sort of get a, a pulse check on what um, the housing access was among people who use drugs in Oregon two years after M110 was enacted and six months, six to 12 months after uh, that funding was dispersed. So for those who were in the here um, in that first panel, Morgan so eloquently described this sample. This is a sample of 468 people who use drugs in Oregon across these eight counties in this map. Participants were recruited with, uh, in collaboration with partner agencies or through direct outreach, and individuals were um, eligible to participate if they used any drugs that were impacted by M110. So for example, if someone just used cannabis or alcohol, they were ineligible. The data were collected between March and November 2023, and this was roughly two years after the enactment of M110 and about six months um, after that funding was dispersed. I'll also be presenting some data uh, from the qualitative interviews with uh, 32 participants who are the same people that participated in the quantitative survey. So the median age of this sample was roughly 40 years. 63% of the sample identified as cis men. The median length of time living in Oregon in this sample was 24 years. And 88% earned less than the federal po poverty level. To put that number into perspective, the average rent in Oregon was $1,300 a month between 2018 and 2022, according to the US Census. So we have a sample of Oregonians who use drugs that, are, that have primarily been living in Oregon for more than two decades and live in poverty. In terms of race and ethnicity, roughly two thirds of the sample identified as non-Hispanic white, followed by 18% who identified as two or more races. 6% black, 5% uh, Hispanic Latin A, and 4%, or sorry, yeah, 4% um, indigenous, and then less than 1%, uh, both native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Asian. Compared to the overall state of Oregon, our sample is more diverse uh, with a greater proportion of non-white individuals. Now, in terms of drug use, we wanted to look at uh, the number of years that folks have been using drugs. We limited this to, um, fentanyl, heroin, methamphetamine, powder, and crack cocaine. And over half of our sample have been using drugs for more than 21 years. Over 80% have been using drugs for more than 10 years. And only seven people, or 1.5% of this sample, started using drugs since M110 was enacted. I'll repeat that again, less like 1.5%, less than 2% of people who use drugs in Oregon started their drug use since M110 was enacted. In terms of the types of drugs, stimulants and opioids were the most commonly reported. Um, in this graph here, we show that almost 70% of the sample reported high use of stimulants, defined as using 21 or more days in, out of the past 30 days. And as Morgan showed in the uh, first panel, the majority of um, the sample used methamphetamine. Fewer people reported using opioids, and among those that did use opioids, almost 50% reported high use. Now, in terms of housing, 85% of our sample self-identified as homeless or unstably housed. And what we're learning from the qualitative study is how much drug, sorry, how much housing is related to drug use. This one participant shares, I do believe that's why people use drugs out here. That's why I used drugs because they're homeless. You take away a person's home and they have nowhere to go. They're going to use drugs. I think I was out there for two months without using it. It was miserable. So I started using again. This quote highlights how people may use drugs to cope with the traumatic experiences of homelessness. 
and that housing instability can be a major risk factor for low adherence to treatment and recovery. Now, among those that self-identified as homeless or unstably housed, 93% said they wanted to get housing. Again, 93% of those people that I self-identified as homeless or unstably housed wanted it. 30% said they were currently on a wait list for housing, and the average length of time on a wait list was almost a year and a half. From the qualitative study, participants, participants report how difficult it is to access housing. One participant shares, I've tried before, but their wait lists have always been really long. Or it's like section eight, where you have to enter a drawing or whatever they do. I've entered before, but my name didn't get picked. Now I have, I've had an assessment, so I'm on a waiting list. It seems like it's better. This quote speaks to the gap in the supply of housing availability for people who use drugs. Participants can spend up to a year waiting for a bed to open up, and that time spent unstably housed can put people who use drugs at a higher risk of relapse and other adverse health outcomes. Back to the quantitative data, in our sample, among those that were unstably housed or homeless, 71% reported that they sought housing assistance in the past year. Of them, only 25% were successful in obtaining housing. Why only 71% of people who identified as homeless or unstably housed sought housing? That's a very complex question. Uh, but qualitatively, from our study, participants report many barriers to housing access. One participant shares, I haven't tried myself, but as far as I've heard, it's like a job. It's like having a full-time job. Another says, oh, you've got to be in at nine o'clock or you can't spend more than two nights away from here and they can't be back to back. Are we dealing with kids or are we dealing with adults? Because you guys are making us seem like I'm nobody. These quotes highlight the barriers that people who use drugs face when uh, trying to get housing. It can be demoralizing to navigate a very complex housing system when you don't know whether or not it's going to pay off. And furthermore, uh, current housing policies may be uh, dehumanizing for folks who are unstably housed and who use drugs. Uh, here's a figure, that same figure, the quantitative figure before uh, by race ethnicity. So the blue bar is non-Hispanic white, the orange, black, the red, Hispanic Latin A, and that green teal color, uh, indigenous. And we see racial and ethnic differences in this housing access. Black and Latin A groups sought housing more often than white or native groups at 83 and 79% respectively. However, fewer of them attained housing. Black and Latin A groups uh, were a third less likely than white groups to obtain housing. In summary, most people in our sample have been longtime residents of Oregon and did not recently move to Oregon to use drugs. Very few people started using drugs after M110 was enacted. And there is still a large unmet need for housing among people who use drugs, two years since DCRIM and about six to 12 months after the funding went out to community providers. Conservative efforts are really needed to ensure equitable access to people, um, especially black and Latin A populations. And M110 is one of the largest investments in housing expansion for people who use drugs. One year in from that influx of funding, uh, but as uh, Kristen had um, presented on earlier, the effects of our have already been felt in the communities across the state. With the Oregon Health Authority reporting almost 3,000 individuals obtaining housing, uh, which is almost a 300% increase in the number of people serviced. 
Yet the impacts of this investment on housing and substance use are still under investigation and just require further time for evaluation and data to be collected. That was Esther Chung, Ph.D., social epidemiologist with RTI International, speaking at RTI's Oregon Measure 110 Research Symposium January 22nd on the topic of homelessness and housing access among people who use drugs in Oregon in 2023, a survey in eight counties. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Morgan Godvin is a writer, editor, drug policy expert, and founder of the drug-checking harm reduction organization Beats Overdose, and a member of the state of Oregon's Measure 110 Oversight and Accountability Council. She was one of the experts who spoke at this RTI symposium. I interviewed her recently. We have a little bit of time left, so here's part of that interview. Yeah, Beats Overdose is a harm reduction organization that was created in partnership with the independent hip-hop label Rhymesayers Entertainment. Uh, initially, we provided harm reduction at music industry events, concerts, to fans and artists alike, uh, before expanding out into other nightlife and then just general harm reduction at outreach at encampments and other events. Uh, drug checking is an intervent. It's literally exactly what it sounds like it's checking someone's drugs to see what's in them so you're going to see the composition the molecular composition of the drugs and this is done through either mass spec or ftir which is this these little portable machines that harm reduction organizations are starting to be able to buy uh, whether they're raising money or getting grant dollars because they're quite expensive and so they're buying this little shoebox sized machine that shoots infrared lights at the drugs. And then based on the way the light refracts, um, it can tell what that molecule is, what that substance is. And so it's how we are able to tell when there's poison in the drug supply, what's going on in the drug supply. Is there fentanyl in the meth? No, there is not fentanyl in the meth. Uh, spoiler um <laughs> looking at cocaine seeing what fentanyl is cut with some purity indications but uh, not really you can just see like what the first ingredient is what the second ingredient is you know sort of like in descending order like you'd see on the back of a food package you don't know like oh is this 80 percent and this is 60 percent no you don't know but you just know it's in descending order um and then mass spec is even more specific more sensitive um, in how it provides the results. And so these are interventions both for the individual user to know what they're using and it acts as a sentinel at the population level to identify trends in the drug supply. And depending on where organizations are getting their grant funding to do this, uh, many of them are reporting uh, these data back to the CDC. Uh, there's still an in incredibly few drug checking operations in existence currently. So there's huge swaths of the country that are still blind spots to us where we still really don't know what's going on. Uh, but this has been identified as harm reduction intervention priority number one from the state of Oregon on the harm reduction subcommittee of the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. So really trying to figure out how can we support harm reduction organizations in purchasing FTIRs in the training required to use them, they're not user-friendly. And then what are we going to do with the data that are being collected? How does this convert into a public health intervention for the people most in need, for people actively using drugs? 
That was part of my interview with Morgan Godvin, founder of the drug-checking harm reduction organization Beats Overdose and a member of the state of Oregon's Measure 110 Oversight and Accountability Council. And you can find Beats Overdose on the web at beatsoverdose.com. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Century of Lies is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's Audioport service. Please support your local community radio station. Become a member. Become a volunteer. Find this edition of Century, along with an archive of past shows, at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. You'll find a link there to subscribe to the Century of Lies podcast. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Mm